0: All right. Very excited to have this guest today. You guys know him as Mr. Wonderful. You've seen him many times on Shark Tank, of course. And now he is starting a new series on CNBC called Money Court. It's Kevin O'Leary. Thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Great to be here. Thank you.
0: I'm a big, big fan of yours. Um, Of course, I've, like many people, um, been mesmerized many times by the endless, endless cycle of Shark Tank and uh, Air's uh 24/7 365 whether you're walking through an airport a lobby at home uh, it just it never stops it's incredible it's an incredible a show that is now in your what is it 13th season or something like yeah, that yeah we're in the middle of the 13th season right now it's really an incredible success that um i don't know people just can't get enough of i i likened it to a little bit of when it first started when american idol first started you would watch people being like i want to be a singer and then you'd watch them sing and you're like, either they are terrible and you get some joy out of that, or you're like, oh my God, this person's incredible. And there's something about watching people pitch successful business ideas to, or pitch ideas to successful business people and hearing what kind of feedback you give them that I don't know why, but obviously a lot of people feel that way. It's exciting. It's exciting to either see them go down in flames or get you guys to compete and start wanting to invest in that business.
1: Well, it's really hard to get financial freedom singing. If you get yes. a hit product and you sell hundreds of millions of dollars out of it, which happens all the time on Shark Tech these days, you're free. And so yeah. we 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 are the essence of the American dream. And I I think that's what I've learned after all of this over a decade of of watching. And and I must say something, you know, that's really remarkable. Just because you think it's a hot product doesn't mean it's so. You need a portfolio approach because my biggest winners were ones I thought weren't going to work, and vice versa.
0: Is that really true? Your big, like your biggest winners, you weren't even convinced that were going to be that successful. Yeah, I took a flyer because I liked the person or the team or the woman or the man
1: pitching it, and the end, of the thing ends up making me millions of dollars. You just don't know, and that's why you can't stop watching it. It really is. It, it's kind of it, you know, it's a combination of of timing, marketing skills, social media. All of these things have to come together uh, to make a product really work or a business. And, and we've learned that. I mean, that's why, you know, every day in my portfolio of over 34 companies. Now there's something euphoric going on on a few of them and catastrophic on the other. It's like a passion play. The phone is ringing. I'm getting emails. Oh, we're going out of business. The other one's just said we're being acquired for 10 times revenue. You just don't know. And that's what I love about it.
0: Yeah. I I imagine that's a pretty exciting thing. Well, how do you handle, the catastrophic news like when you get news that like look this business is in the shitter and you know you put your money into it like i guess i feel like most people would be like don't get too emotional but isn't it almost impossible to stay without emotion when you get those kinds of calls well i want
1: to assure you
0: when i lose money
1: i cry like a baby i really do because it's so hard to make it and it yeah. doesn't matter how much you have when you kill it that way. It's just really stressful. But the way I look at it is, look, it's going to happen. Some percentage, even in venture capital, you know, if you can look back since the 1950s. You're only going to get a two out of ten that are really going to work. And they're going to pay for the other eight dogs you invest it in. But on Shark Tank, we do way better because we have hundreds of millions of people watching the show. And so at the end of the day, after through syndication and international distribution, Products get distributed worldwide as people get to know them. It's the most powerful eight minutes of consumer advertising you can get. That's why everybody wants to bring their idea to Shark Tank.
0: Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. I mean, that would be, you know, which one I remember, by the way, sometimes, you know, these things, I don't know if you'll remember this one. You probably will because you invested in it, but it was, it was multiple. It was many seasons ago, but I remember watching this pitch and and watching you, uh, you know, compete for it. It was a guy who had come up with a play-doh that was maybe it was like for like some type of out, al- like had an ingredient missing that no one had had um, had thought to do. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. And, I do. And then you, you um, he wanted to give you, he would, he had agreed to give you 49% and you were like, nah, 51% cause I need to be able to, you know, make decisions on this thing. And he ended up going for it. And I thought it was a a brilliant idea, a concept. I don't know whatever happened with the company. You know, products like that aren't companies
1: yet. They're just products. And that's why I need 51% because I know at the end of the day, a lot of people have great ideas but you need executional skills with great ideas. You can't just have a great idea. There are a dime a dozen. Executional right. skills are really hard to find. So when you combine executional skills with a great idea, then you have a business. But right. that doesn't happen that often. So when I see somebody there's a great product, no distribution, no idea what to do with it, maybe I'll take a flyer, but I'm not going to let them manage it. I mean, look, you take the, you have to tell the truth on these situations. I'm the only shark that tells the truth. Everybody else lies to everybody trying to make them feel better. Uh-huh. And they call me the mean shark. It's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. Hey, man, I'm on your side, a thousand percent. Now, uh, the new show, Money Court. You're going to be flanked by a trial attorney and um, a former uh, public, uh, a former public defender and judge. And you're taking real people's money issues and and hearing them out and making a decision, giving them advice, and having the the other two attorneys weigh in on it. What do you find is the most common? Money issue for most people, because money is obviously such a huge factor in all of our lives. We live in this capitalistic uh, world and society. So money is a thing that people argue about people, you know, break up over people get together over. It's a huge thing. So what what is like the most common issue you find when it comes to money? So, the, the problem, if you think about categorically, uh, small business in
1: America represents 65% of job creation. Mostly these are family businesses that were started, sometimes by the existing generation or maybe the previous generation, and they've grown to 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 million dollars in sales and they're successful. But within families, There's always ego intention. Always. There's the brother, the sister, the mother, the cousin, whatever. And, you know, even though the business is really successful, these emotional aspects surface every once in a while and cause a lot of chaos. And it's sort of the way I tell everybody this is to think about this. If you're, if you are unable to fire your own mother, you shouldn't run the family business because you've got to think about the business first. It is what sustains everybody, all the employees, all the customers, all the bank loans, all the investors, you got to take care of the business. You can't let yourself get caught up in a huge legal battle with your brother. What a dumb idea. But it happens all the time. And that was the essence of what money court is. And so what we tried to do is, first of all, break the logjam that's been created during the pandemic. There are tens of thousands of cases waiting to get into court because the courts haven't really been open during the pandemic. So they decided to go to arbitration. Now, you can choose who arbitrates your case. And what's really interesting about this, when we started casting it, because these are real cases, real litigation, real money here. They've got to sign a contract that they will abide by my rendering, by my decision. And many of the people said, you know, I don't really like that, Mr. Wonderful, but I trust him. How about that? And that just shows you telling the truth is not a bad thing because at least you, they think they'll, you'll render the truth. I've got Katie Fang with me. Who's absolutely spectacular? She's a trial attorney. I've got Anna Pozo, and she's amazing too. Ada knows exactly what it's like to sit on a bench because that's what she did. She can smell BS a mile away, and when it comes to contract law, you know, Katie Fang's like a weasel. She'll rip your flesh if she smells anything wrong with what you're telling her. And I love it.
0: I've got these fantastic legal advisors, but ultimately, I render the decision. So you make the final decision. I I saw a clip. I think it's from the new show. Or, or maybe it was from an interview that you did promoting it or something where you said that you it was your take on when family asks for money. in this clip you said, you know when family asks for money, I have like a, a basically a steadfast rule that I stick to, which is if I'm giving you the money, I'll give you the money and it's not a loan. You don't have to give it back, but you'll, you'll you never ask me for money again.
1: It's worked for me. I constantly get asked for money and with my own family and this happens anytime one family member has a windfall, it's my advice to them. Everybody's going to come crawling out of the woodwork saying, look, I want to open a bowling alley, a restaurant, a disco. I want to buy a truck, whatever it is. Uh And if you get yourself into a situation where you have family members owing you money, which, you know, with certainty, they're never going to pay you back way better to say, look, I'll lend you this. No, not as a loan. It's a gift. It's yours. I was very fortunate. I'm gifting this money never call me for money again that's our unwritten contract and i've lived through that many times and i'm able to go to thanksgiving dinner every year and smile at everybody and they smile at me we have no tension we have an understanding
0: and do, does has anyone who ever borrowed or taken that money and been like all right thanks have they ever tried to hit you up again of course but we and have an go, agreement we have like, an no agreement. that was the deal
1: yeah look you know i i everybody everybody's life is full of complications and that's just the nature of family there's always the black sheep there's always the story there's always the mother-in-law i mean that's what makes life interesting and there's never a day that isn't boring but you know i've got a lot of ceos that i invest in i've got a lot of operating companies i have my own operating company Uh, you know I, i try and keep a balance in life but at the same time i realize how it works you've got to be transparent you've got to be
0: honest and sometimes people can't stand the truth well kevin let me ask you something i, I do pretty well and I, I make a good living and uh my mom keeps hitting me up for shit man like it's constant it's luggage it's trips to casinos i just bought her a freaking macbook so she can just play bridge like it never ends do i just keep buying her stuff because she's gonna die someday yeah. If it's your mother, you got to keep buying her stuff. Okay. So that's the, that's the one. <laughs> I mean, that's the one, that's okay. the one rule. You can't mess with your mother. It's bad karma, okay. man. But everybody else I can tell them to. Yeah. They're not your mother. Hit the bricks. Yeah. Okay, cool. Just wanted to make sure on that. She's going to love this portion of the show. So um, now I wanted to, I, I read a thing about your, your investment philosophy, about age versus hold, you know, holding stocks and bonds. I wanted to know, do you have an opinion Uh, on real estate do you believe that having real estate as an investor is a good idea worthwhile or like see this is my this is my take on this before you tell me i feel like people are drawn to the types of investing they're familiar with so i have friends who their families uh they were raised in real estate families in other words the family owns Homes and and apartments and condos that they rent out. So as the kids get older, that's what they invest in. My father was a stockbroker. So it was like the the market is what I'm familiar with and I I feel comfortable with. But I've also thought of diversifying in the way of getting like into uh, an investment property. And I'm wondering if you think that is wise or not.
1: Yeah, I I do have a lot of real estate in my portfolio, but I'll tell you a role that my mother taught me who is not a, you know, analyst or a portfolio manager, but she did incredibly well during her life. Simple rules. She said never put more than five percent into one, any one position and never more than 20 percent in any one sector, including real estate. And her theory was that no matter what happens, if something blows up on you and it's only a five percent position, it can't wipe you out. Where people get killed, particularly in real estate, particularly in commercial real estate, which has gone under a lot of pressure because people's work patterns are changing as a result of this last year and a half of pandemic this is not a great asset anymore because basically some percentage of the work population never wants to go back to headquarters yeah. and the result, you're seeing all kinds of buildings that used to be AAA, supreme in Boston, New York, Detroit, you know, Florida, Miami, you name it. These buildings are, you know, 15, 20% empty right now. And everybody's yeah. saying, don't worry, it'll get back to normal. No, it isn't going to go back to normal. Some percentage of the population, particularly people work at accounting logistics and, you know, compliance, those are the ones that sit in those cubicles. They have no interest in going back. And if you can't provide them, you know, a, a way to work from their homes in the suburbs, or they're taking care of their kids and the elderly parents, they'll just work for somebody else. And so, I think at the end of the day, we're going through a change. So I'm not, I'm not really as excited about real estate, commercial real estate, as I used to be. I still own a lot of residential. I'm okay with that but not commercial, I want a breather on that. Imagine if you owned a
0: movie theater chain, how screwed you'd be now. Oh my God, I know. I mean, like I I think about the, um, you know, that lawsuit that was all in the news uh, recently, uh, Scarlett Johansson against uh, Disney Plus for her movie that came out. And, you know, uh, as somebody who uh, I'm a comedian and performer, I automatically side with, with Scarlett. But then also when I heard the details, Uh, One line of theirs told me how full of shit uh, they were, which is that, you know, she had a theatrical window that her movie could come out in and that was in the contract. And then they put out a statement that said she didn't take into account the, um, you know, all the pressures and and the catastrophic effect of COVID-19. It's like, yeah, that doesn't get you out of the contract though, man. But I mean, I understand why their position is we needed to stream it as well, but I still feel like it's not a legit Uh, case on their part.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I look at those numbers almost every week because we have businesses that support uh, movie theaters and they are down 60% year over year. The box offices are abysmal. It's a bloodbath on every release. People don't want to go back to those places, not just because COVID, because they're they're used to streaming. They spent a year and a half streaming anything they want. Yeah. If you don't want to release your movie the way people want to watch it, too bad, lose money. That's exactly what's happening to these people. I think they made James Bond five years ago and they're still waiting to release it. I think I'm not right. going to a theater to see that. If you no. can't serve it up to me in my basement with my own popcorn and my own can of pop, forget it. I don't care, I'll watch something else. That's yeah. the new reality. And you've got to listen to what the customer wants. Look, if she wants to get into litigation with Disney good luck they're not easy to fight
0: with that's true i I mean i don't know how that'll end up but point being let let me make a prediction not well for her okay (laughs) and uh, is that prediction just based on the 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 giant that disney is and the and the the heavy hitters they'll bring
1: you know i've been working for disney for almost 15 years and sony and i learned to respect the way they run their business and and the way they license their content and the way they work with their talent. It's It's a mutual respect that's required. I would never litigate the hand that feeds me. I would go sit down and try and work it out in private quarters. They would respect me for that. I remember when I was negotiating my contract for Shark Tank in season three, and I didn't want to have an agent. And I went to see the then president of ABC, the studio that was putting it on the air, owned by Disney. And he said, Kevin, can we have a frank conversation? Can we be honest and transparent with each other? And I said, yeah, I negotiate my own deals. I don't want to pay an agent 10%. He said, yeah, you do. And you're going to, because if it's you and me negotiating your deal, there's going to be blood on this carpet. It'll be yours. And I don't want that to happen because I have to work with you for the years ahead. I would rather draw blood from your agent who has to work with me every day for the rest of his life across a wide range of products. And who knows, you may benefit from the fact that he'll horse trade you. You're just meat, you're just talent. It's time you learned that here in Hollywood. And I went, whoa, you gotta be kidding, I'm just meat? He said, yeah. Now you're expensive meat, And I met my new agent that afternoon at the SLS hotel. His name was Jay Suris. We've been together a lot of years, 10 years. He made me a ton more money, a ton. And the reason was he was able to horse trade assets across all the studios. That's how Hollywood works. And it's never going to change. But you never
0: sue the studio. Hey, Scarlett. I want to rethink this one <laughs> <laughs> shit. <laughs> well, I, for the record, I didn't sue you, Disney. <laughs> Scarlett did. Now, let me ask you this. Cause you're a big baller and you have properties and you have all types of holdings. You're a wine enthusiast. You, you you've done it, you know? All... So I always want to ask people who have achieved great success. Uh, what is like a secret, baller thing like everybody knows about private planes and yachts but is there something that as you became more successful you discovered you're like i didn't even know this was a thing it doesn't have to be a product it can be a service is there anything that you've been blown away that exists that you've uh, you've discovered since you became so successful
1: I have this philosophy that I've learned to experience. And I must say, uh, it, 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 I look back, you know, at those moments that didn't mean anything at the time, but you think and remember them now. I was graduating from business school in the last week. And this, they had guest lectures all the time, kind of like that Harvard thing where you're sitting in a big theater and they mm-hmm. walk in a guy, the CEO of a company, whatever, and you listen to him. Maybe the cohort had about 160 people in it. And I remember my guy to my right that had been there with me for two years named barry nicole barry and i were close friends and they walk in this guy i'll never forget this you know i've forgotten everything else in business school but i never forgot this moment he walks in he stands in the middle of the theater but he doesn't say anything he just starts looking around at each of us row after row it was creepy and it was dead suns could hear a pin drop And he said, you guys think you're such hot shit that you're just about to get out of business school and you're going to rip the world apart and you know what you're doing. You know nothing. You have no experience. Two thirds of you are going to fail. You're going to lose your careers and have to find something else. The other third are going to struggle for years before they figure it out. And I leant over to Barry and I said, what an asshole this guy is. But you know what? He was 100% right. He was talking about the value of experience. And the reason I tell the story is I'm that guy. When I teach at Harvard today or MIT or Notre Dame or Temple, I'm that guy. I walk in there and say the same thing and I tell the exact same story. The point is you got to remember those things as you build your own experience up. And now what I've learned is... You need yin and yang in your life. You need business, the hard focus of the binary aspect the black and white making or losing money, but you also have to have the chaos of the arts or music or painting or something else. And for me, that's guitar. I play a lot of guitar, play in some bands. I collect watches. I have a massive watch collection. I know all the large collectors around the world in the royal families and, and all of the people that are really into this stuff and the watchmakers. I love it. It's chaotic. It's crazy but it's the balance. I don't need any more money. I just need to keep what I've got. But, you know, I walk in with another watch and my wife says to me, Hey, asshole, what do we need another watch for? Are you out of your mind? (laughs) And I say, yes, we need this watch. It's one of a kind. And now I own it. She said, how stupid. You can't even wear, if you wore a new watch three times a day for the rest of your life, you still have too many watches. You would never get through them all.
0: It's true. It's true. So, all right, let's talk about watches then because I, I always found that I always liked it. I mean, from when I was a kid, I always liked the the look of um either on on some people you'd see the classic leather strap. Um, and some people I like I love seeing, you know, like that traditional steel sub look that you that became so like I, I love that look. There we go. What do we got? Is that what we're in here? Yeah, Do white see, face
1: Daytona, black, you know, dial. That's the classic
0: steel Whiteface Daytona with a red band, my signature red band. The band is nice, man. Yeah. Are you a fan of like uh, Richard Mille? Do you get yes. like those and you get some of those crazy ones too?
1: Yeah, you know, right now I would say, you know, if we're going to go down the rabbit hole on watches, there sure, are two, there are two uh, living watchmakers that have reached Picasso status, mm-hmm. uh, Roger Smith and F.P. Journe and they make watches by appointment. Uh, Jorn is um, a legend, a living legend. Imagine if you could have a Michelangelo be alive and come and paint a dial for you. That's who he is. He only makes 900 pieces a year. There are thousands of people waiting to get one from him. They appreciate by 400% the minute they walk out the store. God. If you ever flip one, you never get to buy another one from him. It's you really have to prove you're a collector to join the journe society. It's crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. but And I've got a lot of journes. And, you know, to me, it has nothing to do with telling time. I, somebody said to me, how can you even tell the time on that watch? I said, I don't. This is a piece of art. It's this a piece is of a- art it's a piece of art and it's appreciated in value just like art does. So my watch collection is up 114% in the last 12 months. Um, I have them stored all around the world and I'm working on a really interesting new deal that I'm funding to create watch NFTs so that you, you know wow. if there's a one of yeah, I mean to me, I mean I if there's anybody going to do it it's going to be me, me. Nobody knows the collectors like I do, nobody knows the brands like I do and I and I can hire tech guys which I'm doing. I'm going to call
0: this thing the wonder trust. Watch for it. Okay. Yeah. So NFTs, I mean, it's, you know, it was something that I don't even know if it was in the lexicon a year or a little more than that ago. And now it's nonstop. It's all you hear about is all the possibilities of NFTs. So you're obviously proponent of that. Yeah. Well, let me
1: give you a reason why. I have a friend, let's call him Bill. I, you know, these collectors don't like to. They're very quiet about sure. their pieces. I went to his home recently and with a lube, I looked at a one of a kind piece, only one, only one in the world. Maybe five other people have ever viewed it personally. I'm one of those five. And I said to Bill, look, Bill, can I get a picture of this dial just so I can have it? He said, no, I've never let anybody photograph it for obvious reasons. That's when the whole idea hit. And I said, Bill, why don't we partner up and create an NFT company so that you can create the zero zero one NFT, which authenticates your piece that's given stays at the piece for the rest of its life. But then you authorize another 10 serialized 01 through 10. And you let me buy one of those so I can actually own an image. The real thing, the one of a kind dial. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the price? Auction it. I'll pay whatever the world's willing to pay for it. That's where I'm going with this idea.
0: I like the idea a lot. Um, do, are you a fan of Patek's too? Oh, yeah. Patek is like,
1: you know, Patek is, is, is if you think about the major brands that you can't go wrong with, Ademar Piquet, Paquette, you know, Pique um, or Patek, and then uh, Rolex for sure. I mean, Rolex makes millions of watches, but certain Rolexes are the ones you want to go after. Sure. But then you've got the, the, you know, you've got the micro brands like Ming, I have a one of a kind Ming. No one's ever heard of Ming. Unless you're a watch collector, then you go out of your mind to see this watch. It was made for Ming. It's a Ming for Ming. And his production manager was a huge Shark Tank fan. I reached out. It's in Singapore. And I said, listen, I've I've heard a rumor that Ming's making a Ming for Ming. He said, yeah, it's a one of a kind. I said, I'll buy it. And he said, I got to talk to Ming. And maybe Ming will want you to have it. And he did. I have the only one. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty awesome.
0: It's I mean, I look, I'm like, I'm giddy like a teenager here now. I'm going to turn that into an NFT. I didn't realize that um, Patek did the uh, thing that I mean, you see from different types of manufacturers, especially like high end luxury things where you go in the store and you're like, I want to get the uh, what's the uh, the green uh, face? Oh, green the Nautilus. You're talking yeah. about the
1: 5711, which just got you know what happened? The 5711, the classic blue dial was this that was the entry level Patek. Right. And it exploded. I mean, maybe you bought it for 30 grand. The minute they canceled it, I think it went to 150000 Now, I'm lucky to have a 5711, but they also have the last of the 5711, which is a green-faced version of the same yes. novelist. And grown men are weeping to get one.
0: Yeah, I, I love that watch. But I yeah. didn't realize that when, you, when I was in this, in, the, in this store, they go, oh, you have to own other ones for us to even like, get you that one. I was like, oh.
1: Let okay. me tell you something. The chance that you'll own that watch is zero, just cool. to put you to set you up. You're going to have to deal with all the collectors around the world that have millions of dollars of Patek's ahead of you. That's the mm-hmm. thing you've got to understand. Patek understands the value of their collectors. Yeah. And there's something else you should know. Patek has a relationship with royal families all around the world. They don't talk about it. But certain royal families, when a child turns
0: 18, what do you think they get? A one-of-a-kind Patek. Wow. So, when you think of um, your collection, and and like the you know the magnitude and the value of it, ultimately, as you get older, is it something you go, I want to leave this to my kids? Is it something you'd want auctioned off? Is it something you'd wanted shown like a museum style? What's like your ultimate dream for your watch collection? Yeah,
1: I've been asked that so many times, including from Phillips, which is the world's number one watch auctioneer. They do a, a every fall a huge. uh you know, charity auction, which I participate in, and also the auction watches. I've told my family that's always raiding, including my wife, who loves to wear all my watches and my daughter and son. Mm -hmm. I say, listen, guys, um, all of these are coming in my coffin with me. I'm not leaving anything. (laughs) And so, and the reason I'm going to need all this is I'm going to a place where it's a really, really long time we're talking about it. I'm going to need really good watches. And my wife said to me, don't worry, Kev. I'll bury them in the case. Don't worry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) so your collection is hundreds of watches i'm assuming or maybe you know what
1: i've learned because i've had
0: two heists over the decades and
1: so i no longer disclose how many or where and i have a very complex um inventory control system a really complex insurance system in place but that's why i'm so motivated along with several other collectors to start this nft company because all of us that have these massive collections are going to create these nfts in association with giant insurers, because yeah. we, we want the manufacturer to authenticate our serial number and we want the insurer to insure based on location. But you know, my watches, they'll never be a heist again because they're in
0: so many different countries and so many different vaults all over the place. Well, congrats on that. You know, my, uh, one of my agents worked out like a really good deal for me on something. And, um, and then when I was talking to him, he was like, how happy are you with this deal? I go, very happy. And he goes, "Cool, you're gonna buy me a watch." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> and he goes, "Yeah, I'm a collector, so that's your that's what you're gonna do." Not so like- easy, to, not so easy to get watches these days. As an asset class, they've exploded
1: to the upside. Even for example, the uh, recently uh, a standard six thousand dollar Rolex, just you know, the the entry level Rolex, they put out a bunch of colored faces. One of them was a coral red face on a six thousand dollar perpetual. Mm-hmm. And Kanye was seen wearing it oh, at a basketball yes. game and gave it to his soon to be divorced wife, I guess, Kim Kardashian mm-hmm. on television. The watch exploded. It just every woman wants this 41 millimeter entry level coral red. I, it's just insane now. That's well, the kind I noticed, of thing that happens.
0: I went to I was in Vegas a few weeks ago and, you know, walking through one of the nice casinos and they have every type of store. And I, I went into the like one of the high-end jewelry stores, just, you know, looking at watches, they ha- their inventory was abysmal. Like they had like two of these and two of these. And I'm like, where else do you they have? Don't, like this they don't it. have any watches in retail. There, there are none. You're
1: going to have to deal with the representative and, you know, Rolex is sold out. Patek sold out. Edmar PK is sold out. Even Omega sold out. Everything's sold out.
0: Okay. Well, good to know guys. Uh, you got to know someone to get a watch. Now, let me ask you about big, because we're talking about big ticket purchases. One thing that um, a lot of different couples families talk about is, is when there's a big purchase made, is there a discussion? Personally, I'll just buy something and show up with it. And then my wife's like, how much was that? And I'll be like, it was this much. And then she'll be like, Oh my God. And I don't, I don't, talk about it ahead of time, Um, but some people have lengthy discussions about whether or not a purchase should be made. And I'm wondering if you have an opinion on that.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting observation because I did a book. I wrote a book once. I did a lot of research on called Men, Women and Money. I ended up writing three of them on this topic. And on that first book, which took I thought it would take me a couple of months to write, it took me over a year and a half. I did a lot of research with divorce attorneys and I found out something incredible. It doesn't matter what you know, economic level you're talking about. Fifty percent of unions break up between five and seven years, not for infidelity. Most marriages can you know, survive infidelity. It changes them somewhat, but they can survive. What they can't survive is financial stress. The, 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 the majority of breakups have to do with inconsistencies in one couple's spending habits versus another that puts the family under financial stress. That's why the union breaks up. It's just hard, to, too hard to deal with. Because really a family at the end of the day after seven years is a business. You basically both have to have common goals. You have to save commonly. You can't get into debt too much and sometimes people are incompatible they never did any due diligence going into the marriage about that and so really you know when i tell people look if you're dating and you're going on your third date time to start some financial due diligence about your potential partner the fact you're getting together for a third time must mean something and so you know it's it's worth asking Um, i mean I, i love the romantic part of any relationship but at the end of the day if, if you're losing money and you're putting your partner under tremendous stress and you can't support your kids in your home, you're going to get divorced.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess you're right. I mean, I, I feel like the um, probably the most stressful time in my own marriage was um, those early years when we were struggling the most. Right. Because you're just. It, it keeps you up at night. How are we going to pay for this? You know? Yeah. yeah. No, I remember when I got
1: married, I, I couldn't even afford uh, any dinner for our guests or anything. We just ordered in pizza and I said, listen, stay tuned. I think I'll figure something out. We'll have a party in a few years when I can afford it, which is basically what we did, but it was really tough for the first four years.
0: Yeah. And um, those, I mean, for us, God, I, like, I would say the first the first few years were the, were absolutely the the hardest. And we were living in a terrible neighborhood and in a horrible apartment. And, and, you know, even like when we would, I would, I sold something like this uh, web thing and I got a check for it. It was like the day before a bill came from the city for like a new tax. And I was like, Oh shit. And it was, you know, thousands of dollars. And like, it felt like you couldn't win. But you, you know, know
1: on the other hand if you can make it and you're with the same you know partner you had all those years that's equity you've built in your relationship. I'm still married to my wife the one that we had no money and she's yeah. never been impressed with money. She just doesn't care. And so you know it's not what makes her happy. She just wants to take care of the family and you know it, it's it's it just it, it's really refreshing actually to find that out. I know she didn't marry for marry, marry me for money cuz I didn't have any.
0: So that's good to know. Yeah, that is good to know. Um speaking of the the how things started when you were mentioning, you know, business school, there I always hear people weigh in on, particularly very successful people, and you you'll hear varying opinions. I feel like you hear the loudest a lot of times successful people will talk about how school um particularly, you know, the high-end Ivy League educations, some successful people say like, "Oh, it's meaningless and a waste of time." And I'm wondering as somebody who went to business school, and is now very successful, what your opinion is on higher education basically for, for business people.
1: Yeah, I actually have been asked this many times in the past and have gotten myself in a lot of trouble with the institutions I teach at because I go back particularly to institutions that are graduating courts of engineers because um, a third of an engineering class is gonna come out with new ideas and I like to see the deals before the venture capitalists do. And uh, I'm always intrigued, um, you know, when I tell them my truth. I mean, the way I look at it is, you know, post-secondary education in a discipline like engineering or psychology or, you know, certain uh, medical verticals. Yeah, you have to do that because you have to get accredited by the association that lets you get a license to practice. But business school is different. I'm not sure um, that, you know, People remember anything from business school, and I'm not sure that's that, that actually matters. The, the people that I've made the most money with, many of them never finished high school, and so what makes a great entrepreneur has nothing to do with education, other than the straight smarts they get being educated by the real world. But I'll tell you what business school is good for. Okay. All the people that I went to school with. I don't know how many decades ago now. I don't remember a single thing about what they taught us, but I remember them and they are all over the world now. And I have a, you know, a special bond with them because I actually was with them in school for two years. I can call any of them up and most of them are running banks or, you know, is financial institutions or manufacturing facilities all around the world. And if I need something, I just call them up. Say, look, I'm doing a financing for three hundred million dollars on a deal. Uh, are you? You know, can you send me some of your bankers to look at this thing? And they say, yeah, sure. I mean, I know who you are. You've got street cred with me, and that's really the value of it. It's not you're you're creating a, a a experience with others that you know that the, the only you have and those relationships are very very powerful some go into government i find them everywhere and, and so we stay in touch with each other just because we experienced those two years together in a very tough time none of us had money we were working like hell to get through it we graduated um That's the value. And now the professors who let me teach in their classes say, Hey, dickweed, that's not what we like to say. (laughs) And I said, I don't care. It's the truth. It's my truth. And so, but they still invite me back.
0: No, that's a, that's a really interesting point because ultimately I think, you know, the older you get, you realize how valuable uh, relationships are and in in any type of business like in the, even the business that I'm in with like comedy and podcasting and and the the stuff that we do I mean those relationships those phone calls that I can make a lot of times are the things that lead to something happening it's because yeah, I've known I, I would
1: ag- I would agree with that I, I would also say something else has happened um you know speaking of of media and podcasting and celebrity and all that stuff. In the last three years, what I've noticed, and this is a very powerful trend that I think is never going to reverse, the intersection between social media, the media itself and stock market capitalization has merged. You've seen what's happened with Robinhood and Reddit and these meme stocks. That's never going to change. If you're able to tell a story about a company and you're able to broadcast out and this is proven by Shark Tank, actually, if you have the ability to reach millions of people, you have a different kind of power than anything in terms of what a company can do that no one knows. I mean, they can buy advertising, they can do all that stuff, but it's not the same. So when people come to me and say, look, will you be an investor in my company? you know, we'll give you stock options. I say, I'm not interested in that. I mean, you just want to trade my name and say that I somehow invested in your your company with stock options, which we both know is complete bullshit. If you want me to be your partner, I'm going to buy a third of the company. You're going to give it to me in terms that I think are fair. And then if I like what you're doing, I'll blow you up bigger than you ever dreamt, which is what I do. And so, you know, I I take my own money. I don't want anything for free. Same with watches. I don't, take free watches and watch companies. I buy them. So I don't owe anybody anything. I don't want right. to owe anybody anything, but the point is I, I, you know, I buy a third of the company and I, I make, I make it grow.
0: You feel like um, uh, when it, when it comes to a lot of times when, when you're coming up, right. You, you think about a, a sum of money as being enough. And, you know, somebody might say like, oh, you know, you have no money. They go, oh, a million dollars or whatever. And and then you achieve that and you and, and make many times more of that. People a lot of times look at people that have achieved success um, at a high level and they have, you know, more money than they think they you could ever need or spend. And they go, why do you keep working? And I always think that it's because, well, A, like what else are you going to do? But also because you get the thrill out of the deals and the competition and, you know, trying to make it work and seeing it work again. It's not so much that like, oh, I have this much more money now I can buy something. It's like being in the game.
1: Yeah, I, what I, I would say to that, I've tried retirement, you know, most, I've, I've talked to many entrepreneurs that, that have had big liquidity events. I mean, mine was the classic start in the basement, 10 guys, one day we wake up, our company gets sold for $4.2 billion. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, we all showed up the next day back at the office. saying, what do we do next? I mean, you know, we didn't know anything else except working. And and even though I, I woke up and said, shit, I'm really rich and but it didn't change anything. But I decided, well, maybe I'd like to go around the world and visit every beach like just there's a project. Let's go visit every beach, the ones in Cambodia, Vietnam, north coast of Cyprus, all this stuff, which I did for 36 months was that ever boring? Like I was going out of my mind. And and so I just said, I got to get back in the game. I, I you know, I got to get back in the game. And, and so I just started doing deals again, not so much as an operator, but as an investor. And so, um, you know, I did my stint as an operator, which is very hard work. And I respect that. But I, but I tell, I tell all my CEOs today, the people that are successful do not pursue Money for the greed of it—they—they're they, never successful if they try that. If you're after money because you're just greedy, you, you'll never have any. But if you have a real passion about a business, you'll wake up one day like I did, saying, "Wow, how'd that happen?" Because it's—it's it's the pursuit of personal freedom that is what sets you free. It's—it's it's that you—you're you're driving, you know, your business because you love yes. it so much. You want to compete, and then once, you know, one day it's worth a lot of money and somebody buys it, and that sets you free, and then you pursue the things that matter uh, to you. Um, and that's what I do. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that every day I, you know, I have this woman I work with named Nancy Chung breaks up my day into blocks. And, and every week at the beginning of the week, I look at the week and I say, what's this over here on Thursday at three? She says, yada, yada, yada. I said, I'm not doing that. I don't care who they are or what they are. I don't care. I don't want to be rude. Tell them now I'm not doing it. It doesn't interest me. And, yeah. You know, it's my time. I'll cry if I want to. And I don't I don't have to do it. And so I want everybody to get to that place. It's a very fulfilling place to be.
0: That's, a, that's I think that's great advice. I know that um, people ask me about, you know, stand up. And I'm, I always tell them that the only thing I know for sure about achieving some success in that field is that you have to have a level of, of obsession about it, um, especially in the first you know, 10 plus years. Like if, if what matters to you is having success in those years, I've never seen it work. It's just people that are in love with the process of writing and performing and getting on stage. And all those people that were obsessed and didn't care if they couldn't make rent and all their friends were buying their first homes and all this stuff. And you go like, I don't give a shit. I just, I love stand up. All those comics that I know are the ones who achieved success.
1: Yeah, that's a very dark profession. I had a chance to travel um, while shooting a documentary as a cameraman once with a group of stand-ups. A lot of drug addiction, a lot of alcoholism there. Yeah, it's great. Uh, It's a really tough, uh, tough, tough, tough business because you're on at night. You've got a lot of crazy people in the audience, and it just grinds on. Those oh, clubs yeah. in LA and Chicago, been there, done that yeah, to survive that. You've really got to have uh, some
0: kind of an instinct of, uh, you, you can, know, you got to care so much about what's going on on stage. I mean, because other people, the people do succumb to the drugs and the alcohol and everything, all the temptations of it. But the ones who like, I consistently go like, yep, that, you know, the, that person's totally made it. They, they cared so much. They were so obsessed with performing comedy, that nothing else mattered, and then, you know, all of a sudden, ten and twenty years later, achieving all this great success, and people are, you know, it's funny when they they go, "He's an overnight success," or like, he "Just came out of nowhere." It's like <laughs> I, yeah, it's I'm been well doing aware. For
1: twenty years. There are no overnight successes in the comedy space. It's brutal. It's I, brutal. You know, I've always thought that the, the, the best perch would be to get your own night show on television or something, which there's only five or six of. But yeah. the, the travel is the food is terrible. The travel is brutal. I mean, it's just...
0: the travel is what kills you. It's like yeah. the um, like that old, I think, I think it was Gene Hackman said it. Um, I, I might be getting it wrong, but he said, uh, um, the, uh, I act for free. It's the waiting around that you pay me for, you know, on, on movie sets. <laughs> and uh, I feel the same way about stand up. It's like I'll do the show for free. It's all this brutal travel that I'd like to get paid for you know?
1: Yeah, no, I know that is tough. And, you know, as a result, I think you get to see other people's professions and I enjoy doing that too. But I, if, at the end of the day, I'm very busy just supporting my companies and, and I like all the different things they do and uh, and I enjoy making television. And so maybe we'll do full circle here because I got to leave in a few minutes. I'm on yeah. this press tour for money court uh, Wednesday night, 10 o'clock CNBC. I got to tell you the casting of that show And I've done a lot of work on television. Yeah, you have. Yeah. And we went through countless co-hosts just in the middle of pandemic. So we're doing it all remotely by Zoom, Mm -hmm. trying to find the chemistry to make it work. Just like, you know, comedic presence. You got to have chemistry. Yeah. And Adaposo, the federal judge, the Cuban federal judge, was probably the last person we tested. Cause we were just at wit's end. We said, we, we got a pick from what we got, you know? Yeah. And I remember casting, we'd already chosen Katie. She was amazing. And I said, let's just try this one other, just to turn every stone over. And she mm. was crazy good. And I went, Whoa, like, you know, you just never know. Yep. And boom, when that cast got together and the reason I know this thing's going to be a FM hit, like a, or maybe I should say MF hit. Like I can't say it, but it's you you want me what to I say mean. It? I'll say it. I know it's going to be a motherfucking hit. Here's why. Because <laughs> I, I basically have made so much TV in my time that I've worked with crews, you know, with every, in every studio. But I did yeah. this one at the Telemundo Studio, the brand new digital studio. The sound technicians, the lighting technicians they've seen everything they don't watch tv they make tv for you all the people that are in makeup and the catering and all that stuff when you're taping they're not watching i looked over to my right in the middle of the first case that we were shooting which was a crazy case and it was emotional and people were just being ripped apart by this situation where a mother was suing her own daughter it was a gut Jesus. and i looked over to my right and everybody in the studio was glued to the line feed on one of the monitors like 30 of them they weren't even attending the soundboards anymore yeah. and i went whoa and when the break hit and the makeup girl came over to me she said you asshole. You should have given the daughter more. She was totally engaged. Yeah. In, and I knew motherfucking hit. We got a hit <laughs> here because the people that are supposed to be making the TV are watching the TV. That's what I know. Watch it happen when it airs on
0: Wednesday. I think this That's, thing's going
1: to be crazy.
0: All right. It's a um, new I'm, six part series on CNBC called Money Court. Uh, Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Uh, Kevin O'Leary. Thank you very much for joining. Thank us. you, my friend. That was a great
1: interview. Really enjoyed it thanks it was a lot of
0: fun thanks man